Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Chris Rowan. Chris is a pediatric occupational therapist, a biologist, an international speaker, and an author. Chris is extremely passionate about changing the ways in which children use technology. She has provided over 350 workshops on screens and children and recently created reconnect webinars for teens, parents, teachers, and clinicians providing research and strategies to manage balance between screens and healthy activities. Chris is the author of Virtual Child, The Terrifying Truth About What Technology Is Doing to Children. She publishes the free child development series newsletter, and she writes a monthly blog post for Moving to Learn. Really impressive, and I'm excited. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Roman. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. And I just have to ask you up front, like, what is a pediatric occupational therapist for those listening? Tell us about that. So occupational therapists work in a variety of different um, uh, areas and with a variety of different ages. Uh, and what we generally do is, is help people to uh, regain function or to improve their function in, in any area of daily living. So it might be what they're doing at home or at work. Um, when we get into kids, when I work with children and, and hence the pediatric occupational therapist, then we're looking at how do children play? How do they do their schoolwork? Um, what sort of activities do they do when they get home? And, and are those activities that they're engaged in, are they purposeful and meaningful for the, the child? Are they something that is um, growing their bodies and their brains and their ability to pay attention and learn and help them um, optimize their behavior or uh, the opposite, right? So- Sounds like um, a, a bit of an observation. Is it an observationist? Is that a word? Um, a detective of behavior, right? Of watching uh, these children in this case and see how they behave and how it can be improved to, I hate to say the term, a productive member of society, but how they could sort of integrate into society, right? Yes. And the, the key point in occupational therapy is looking for what's limiting somebody from really doing well, right? So um, we want to really, with kids, we want to give them that edge they need to succeed and grow and look for kind of what's limiting them from doing that, right? So yeah. what's lovely about occupational therapy is we always work off the what the client wants, right? So in this case, it's the child and often the parents or the teacher. And, uh, you know, so we ask them, well, what do you want to be able to do to make whatever it is better? And um, yes, yeah, so it is a bit of a detective. That's work great. I love that. Now, it's obvious to me that during that observation, right, as a detective, you would see behaviors that we then would label as symptoms and then label as a disorder. So perhaps if you could uh, take our listeners back in time and when, when is the first time that you 
uh, remember encountering this thing called ADHD in your career or in your life? So I've been a pediatric OT for 35 years, and it was probably about 25 years ago, I started really noting a, a change in the referrals from, I work predominantly in schools, but also in homes and clinic settings. Uh, and previously to, you know, when I first started my work as an occupational therapist, I was working with children who had like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or head injuries or, um, you know, difficulty, um, you know, with, with being able to move in their environments um, really typical sort of disabilities. And when um, when screens kind of came on board really big, you know, so we're talking 25 years ago, we're, you know, seeing a lot of kids with TVs and the TVs are migrating into their bedrooms and and then the video games came on board. And, um, you know, I started seeing the referral base changing to more of a, this child's having trouble paying attention, this child's having trouble learning. This child's having trouble with aggression. They can't self-regulate their energy. You know, they're blowing up all the time and throwing chairs across the room. We have to evacuate the classroom, you know, because this child's um, kind of out of control. And I was kind of going, what the heck's going on? So I started uh, 25 years ago looking at the research, which was quite, there was a lot of it even 25 years ago on the impact of screens, you know, in the realm of TV and video games on children's ability to pay attention, learn um, their bodies to develop properly. So um, as the years went on then, you know, certainly the last 10 to 15 years, I'm seeing a huge host of physical and mental um, disorders. So developmental delay being one, a huge one, sleep deprivation, uh, seeing children with high levels of anxiety, um, depression, suicide risk, suicide intent. Uh, it, it just things I've never, ever in my life seen before. So I've had this opportunity as an occupational therapist to really witness this change in children with the onset of screens. And what, now this is rather embarrassing, but I want to be really um, forthright with this is what what I got caught up in and what many other therapists that work in school-based settings get caught up in is what I call the diagnostic model. So we're trained in the medical system and then we go and we walk into the school system and we're going, oh, well, you know, this child possibly has this diagnosis and that diagnosis. And we started um way back, you know, kind of doing this, it's called disease spotting, you know, like, I think this child has this. And we, um, I participated in that, you know, I'd show up at the parent teacher meeting, and I'd say, well, your child has some, you know, um, consistent characteristics with ADHD or autism, or, you know, and, and I really questioned that at that time, but I was sort of part of a big, you know, mill that was like churning forward where if we get these kids diagnosed, we can get some, you know, funding into the school to support them with educational assistance and programming and, and all this sort of thing, you know, so I was really seeing that the kind of the dollars, what we were moving toward to, to bring dollars into the schools to support these children was worth it you know it was it was worth going through the whole process and as as parents who have gone through this process 
it's daunting. It's stressful. It's like the worst, you know, I've had parents tell me this is the worst, like three years of my child's life, uh, you know, because they're going off and seeing all these specialists and the kids are having tests and, you know, and, and in this whole process of kind of labeling, uh, putting a label on this child, um, what I've seen is a real disabling of that child to be able to actually be motivated to move forward and, and do things to be able to play. Um, the, especially the kids I worked with that were on stimulant meds were like, their eyes were dead. They were, you know, they'd lost their spark. And, and I could see such a change um, because I'd see kids oftentimes through the summer when they weren't in school, I'd see them in home and the parents would often pull them off their meds you know, or on the weekend, they pull them off their stimulant meds. And I'd see this kind of lightness come back in the children's eyes. And then we're back to September, they're back on their meds. And, you know, so I, I didn't really see um, a huge um, improvement in anything. And so again, like I stated, I around 25 years ago, I really started digging into the research. And in 2010, published uh, my first book, Virtual Child, and it talks a lot about this, you know, so even back in 2010, we knew um, through some epic studies like the RAIN ADHD study in Australia, we knew that these medications weren't helping children. In fact, we weren't seeing improvements in academics or social ability or, you know, behaviors, which is exactly what I was witnessing in the schools. Um, and we were also seeing worrisome um, cardiovascular effects, like, you know, getting really winded when they do a short little run, um, problems with their growth, problems with their sleep, with their ability to eat and all this, right? So um, I really started questioning what I was doing, and I stopped doing the disease spotting. And instead, what I started doing was saying, let's look at what other things we can do to improve this child's ability to function in a school setting or home setting. Um, and I know <laughs> because I'm a child behavior specialist, I know what children need to grow and succeed. And so I would pull out these little cards I had that had a graphic on them called building foundations. And I write in the parent child or parent teacher meeting. And I would start talking about these are the things that children really need is they need to move lots and they need to, to touch and be touched. That makes them feel really secure. They need human connection. So important to not use screens with these kids in schools and at home. They need human connection. They're having difficulty with social. So we need to increase social, right? And, and the fourth area that um, is really fascinating regarding ADHD is nature. We now know that access to nature can, can drastically improve um, children's ability to play atten pay attention. I'm a huge advocate for the outdoor school concept because right there, we're going to get better attention. So when so I've collated all that research that, um, that supports the use of movement, touch, human connection, and nature to improve um, a child's uh, ability to pay attention, learn not only that, but also their physical, developmental, you know, uh, building core and motor coordination, um, you know, their ability to social socialize with other kids, all this stuff is, is drastically improved 
um, when we use those four modalities. So why aren't we doing that, right? Because to date, a current study, 2022, showed that over half of the kids that go to physicians and pediatricians uh, end up, you know, with with a diagnosis and meds, as opposed to all these other things we could be doing. Right. So, um, and and really, what I'm kind of talking about is let's let kids go outside and play. It's it's that simple. I have a bumper sticker: go outside and play. It's something that we've really forgotten with with the use of all these um, screen based technologies. It's a very simple concept, and it works for creating healthy healthy children. Well, that's amazing, Chris, and so much to unpack. And I just uh, I had to make a few notes because there's so many great things you said. First of all, I want our listeners to know that all the research that you have compiled, like it's all there. Uh, it can be uh, viewed. We're going to have a link in the show notes uh, that that you know our listeners can go to. And if parents want to uh, find out about average screen time or the damages of screen time and so forth, or nutrition, movement, all of that. So I'm just really grateful for you. Um, providing that Chris um talk to me about labels I know I'm kind of jumping back to the beginning mm-hmm. of of your uh, uh answer here but uh, how do you feel about labels I often get uh, uh people responding to our podcast or responding to an episode that are about labels and they're like oh you're just overreacting labels aren't that bad what do you how do you feel about labels such as these disorders like a mental I, disorder I think they're child? terrible Every child, if you talk to just talk to children and ask them what they think about labels, they they want to be the same, right? Like um, we're pack animals. Humans are pack animals. We want to be part of the pack. We want to be an integral member of the pack. We want to look like that wolf right next to us, right? And when we're perceived to be different or we're told that we're different or something's wrong with us, that's the most horrible thing for a child to his stomach. And, you know, so it's, it really is, I say labeling is disabling. It does disable the child. They, we had a normal child. Well, I hate that word normal. Who's normal, right? Right. We had a a beautifully functioning child. Um, In my experience, I've worked with thousands of kids that, that have been diagnosed with ADHD over 35 years. Right. And so we're talking huge numbers here when, you know, when we, when we label that child, we're, we're permanently um, putting a stamp on their forehead, you know, that you were different, right? Yeah, totally. They don't like that. And, and especially you know, when they're younger, right? Right, it's a right. load to put on top of them. And the other thing I see too, is that, that parents would oftentimes use this label to kind of, and not knowingly, but kind of put down the kid. You know, so they'd be saying, well, Johnny can't pay attention, you see, because he has ADHD and like the big eyes. And he's also been diagnosed with and then sometimes I'll have two or three other, you know, diagnoses. And and the poor kids just sitting there going like, oh, I wish they wouldn't tell everybody that, you know. Right. Yeah. So, and the thing is with labeling, right. It, it, it takes me back to the the water experiment doctor. I think his name is Emoto, if I'm not mistaken, but where he labeled bottles of water with positive words, affirmations and negative ones. And it was clear that the positive labels uh, created a beautiful, harmonious looking uh, structures underneath the microscope and the 
the negative ones, it was like chaos, right? So it's not so much about labeling, it's about what we label them with and they're disempowering labels. And I love what you said, labeling is disabling because it really can cause that in a child that they start to think of themselves as less than and that, that you know, chops away at their self-confidence. That's huge. And I think there's another thing that happens here too, is it, it gives the parents sort of a, an excuse or, a, you know, it, it, it disempowers the parent. And what I mean by that is, is if, um, if the, if the parent thinks, okay, well, we've just got a kid with a lot of energy and, you know, a hundred years ago, my kid would have been so functional. They'd be, you know, on that lead horse out there, you know, shooting the Buffalo and, seeing things, you know, first and hearing things first, because they're, you know, their, their sensory systems are really, really acute. Um, if, if the parent had that line of thinking, then they would kind of go toward, maybe my child just needs to get off the video games and go outside and play. And we need to, you know, pump up those bike tires. And we need to put that swing up in the tree in the backyard. And we need to take them to the park. And we need, you know, it's, it's kind of like walking a dog and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not um, minimizing this in any way when I say that, but you know, if you have a dog, they need to get walked. If you have a kid, <laughs> they need movement, touch, human connection and nature and lots of it, especially when they're younger. So um, if a parent's kind of thinking about, oh, my child has this disability, there's nothing I can do, right? I just have to cope or right. get some meds or you know, this sort of thing, right? So, you know, these are parents who are well-meaning, educated, lovely parents, but they're, they're given this diagnosis and they're, they're, it disempowers them from doing anything right. to help the child. It, it makes, uh, it, it, you're right, it's disempowering because it's almost like, oh, there's nothing I can do. And it's the same with when I hear people say, oh, it's genetic, right? Well, it's more nuanced than that. If it's genetic, what parents, when they hear it's genetic, what they hear is like, there's nothing you can do. So just back off, like, don't, don't blame yourself. There's nothing you can do, but there's so many things, what I'm hearing from you, your, your talk, there's so many things they can do. They're just not given the alternative that these modalities or these ways of interacting in the world actually will dissolve these behaviors or symptoms over time. And you've seen it. Uh, every, every day, <laughs> you know, is I'd like to explain a little bit about brain development and body development, because then we can kind of go back to this genetic sort of thing, right? You know, and um, because, and I'm going to just make it, make it super simple to understand, but um when when a child's born, it's they're born with their full complement of what are called neurons. So if we kind of think of a roadmap and we think I'm in British Columbia, think of a roadmap of British Columbia, there's roads going everywhere, right? And there's big roads, there's big fat roads, and there's little skinny roads, right? That are that are rural and smaller. And and so when when a child's born, their whole map is already in place. So we've got the big neurons and we've got some little neurons that are connecting. Um, but uh, two processes happen as the child goes from birth to death. And, and they're, uh, they contribute to the kind of the modeling or the wiring of the brain. And this is very, very connected to the environment that's surrounding the child. So 
when we have a child who has a very enriched environment full of lots of movement, touch, connection, nature, what we're going to see is a totally different brain than when we look at a child who has, say, an impoverished environment where they're not they're not getting anything they need to grow and succeed. And they're spending lots of time, say, on video games or social media. We'll see a totally different wired brain. So these two processes that happen are so important to understand because you as a parent can actually change those processes dramatically by what you expose the child to. So uh, the two processes are called pruning and proliferation. So let's talk about pruning. So from birth to death, across the lifespan of that human, two thirds of those roads, those neurons are gonna get pruned. They're gonna get cut. And the brain does this because it likes to be super efficient. And what it does is it says, oh, hey, we're not using that area of the brain. So we don't need one of those great big roads to that area of the brain. So we'll cut it and we'll cut that area and we'll cut that area. And then the second process that happens is called proliferation. So this is all these little feeder roads that grow in between the big roads and they're called synaptic connections. And those two are relevant to what the child is exposed to, right? So we have these two processes that are going on from birth to death. So there's a lot of plasticity of the brain. The brain changes dramatically based on what you're doing. So what we're seeing with kids who use more than four hours a day of screen time is we're actually seeing pruning uh, of neurons that go to the frontal lobes. So the the front of the brain is is very connected to um, things kids need uh, for school. So our ability to concentrate and focus and pay attention and learn and judge things and critically analyze things and understand, you know, stimulus response, A leads to B, that all happens up there in the frontal lobes, inhibition of um, impulses all up in the frontal lobe. So if we're through the overuse of screens, kind of chopping those neurons to the, the frontal lobes, we're going to see a really different child. We're going to see a child who's very hyperactive because they can't control their impulses. We'll see a child who can't really remember, you know, oh, we did this yesterday and I can't remember anything. Um, we're going to see a child who has difficulty with their moods, with their um, ability to kind of like see the big picture, to understand, you know, that school is a good thing for them, you know. And and so once we understand that about brain development, then we can start kind of looking at, OK, well, what what are some ways that we can preserve those roads we want those roads, the big roads to, to stay there from birth to death, right? We want the little feeder roads to all be connecting the, the big roads. Yeah. Then we get a really diverse brain that can really understand and, and do anything, really, right? We don't want to see a lot of pruning to the frontal lobes or in the, in the realm of like video games, what happens is the middle of the brain, the amygdala and the limbic system gets really overworked, Right. And so we get a lot of neurons growing in there, but we don't have that connection to to the others, the brain that we really need for that child to be successful. And that, that That's amazing to me because it just makes me think of, you know, no one ever talks about like somebody coming to a psychologist or a, a doctor and them saying, oh, well, your child has ADHD. 
but let's see how we can rewire that brain or let's see how we can help. Like it's almost presented as in like, oh, well, your that brain is now done for life. There's nothing you can do except for take medication. When in fact, science or medicine clearly has all the evidence to say, no, the like you said, brain plasticity, it can be changed. Nothing is set for life. But we treat these disorders and these diagnoses as, oh, that's how it is. And sorry, but that's it. You know, God made some broken brains. Sorry about that. You know, it's like. And I, nope, I, I, I just know. want to be clear too. I'm not saying that screens cause ADHD. There's a right. lot of, you know, nothing's that simple. Right. Right. Um, but studies do show when you remove screens, when you go on a screen fast or you unplug for a period of a couple of weeks, the child's ability to pay attention and learn improves. Yeah, it's so, uh, screens are definitely contributing to it. They're an agitator because right once you remove it, if it gets better, that means w without its existence, we're doing better here. So how could we minimize it, right? Or right, probably not right. get rid of it, but minimize it or balance it. The best thing we want to do is uh, with if your child has been diagnosed with ADHD is we want to in, we want to improve the neuronal connections. We want to improve the wiring of that child's brain so that they can, they can optimize their attention and learning. So this is, these are some of the things I always go back to the four um, critical factors for child development, movement, touch, human connection, and nature. And if you can remember those four things, and I think Roman, you're going to put a graphic that I sent you called yeah, building foundations I'll on put your a link. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So check that out, print it off, stick it on your fridge and kind of go when your child looks like they're, you know, a bit hyper, then look at those four things and go, okay, so we need to move. We need to have a cuddle or in a hug and we need to, you know, sit down and have dinner together as a family without screens and we need to go outside. <laughs> well, uh, and so what of those things can we do right now? And so the more you spend engaging in those four activities, the less time there is for screens, right? But the better diversity you're going to get in that in that brain, you're literally the real estate of the brain is going to be taken over by good stuff, you know, and and not, you know, attention deficit. Well, that that's fascinating because if you if we look at those four things, t tell me them again. So movement, movement, I'd actually love to chat a little bit about each one. Can I do that? So movement. Yeah, a bit, well, before you go into that, I just wanted to say when, when I hear those four items, right? Movement, uh, touch, touch connection, 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 and nature and, and nature, right? You look at those four, which one of those four are present at schools? Well, almost none, maybe a little human connection with the teacher, but you know, one teacher and 30 kids. Not a lot of human connection, maybe like a authoritarian or right, whatever. But so that's just amazing. But anyway, yeah, go, go, feel free to go into those four. Well, since we're talking about connection, um, so it's not just connection between the teacher and the child or the parent and the child. The child has all these, you know, peers around them, all their friends and their buddies. And, uh, you know, I'm a huge, um, I am very critical of what's going on with screens in schools today, because every time I walk in a classroom and kids are on screens, they're not doing any of those four critical factors, right? 
And so screens are a detriment actually to child development. And yes, there could be some good content kind of happening there, but they've got a they've got a slow way down on on the usage of screens in schools. Like the American Academy of Pediatrics says no more than two hours per day for kids six to 12 years. So, you know, in schools alone, they're over overdoing it. And then the, the child goes home and then has screen use at home too, right? right? So so human connection is absolutely crucial. Like we know that without human connection, our children will die. We know that from orphanage studies back in the 40s, that the little babies that that didn't have connection with other humans were failure to thrive and died. A, a very interesting study that just came out is that we are seeing a huge growth in failure to thrive babies and in babies that uh, contract SIDS. And so the it, this is in Canada. So the infant mortality rate is changing dramatically. Now, nobody cited screen use as a causal factor for that, but I'm I'm right there going, man, parents, you need to put this stuff down and and pay attention to your children. Human connection is the most important ingredient in in raising a child. And what I mean by connection, that's like, hey, let's put those phones away and let, let's sit down and we'll have we'll have a chat at dinner. You know, how was your day today? You know, tell me one good thing that happened, one bad thing that happened, you know, and how was your day today? Do you want to hear about my day? You know, it's it's turn taking, it's um, eye contact, it's I see you and I hear you. Those are two big, big things kids need to hear because oftentimes I'll I'll watch kids. They're trying to get their parents' attention. They're trying to interrupt and, you know, the parent's busy and whatnot, right? And that child really needs to know that you're listening to them and that you see them and you hear them. And so when they have a problem, oh my gosh, that must be really hard for you. Tell me more, you know, tell me more is a great one. Mm -hmm. So we want, we want to put our kids in the, um, the area where, where they can teach us you know, we want to really honor children and they have a lot to tell us and they have a lot of ideas and they want to tell you this. I've never met a child ever, ever, ever who said they prefer the screen to their parent. And I ask them that often. I say, well, you know, would you rather like play that new video game you were telling me about or go outside and shoot some shoot some bees with your mom or, you know, um, play hopscotch with your dad or whatever, take the dog for a walk, you know, with your parent, they much rather be with their parents. Right. So parents have so much to teach them and have children have so much to learn from their parents, but the reverse is true too. And if, if we don't listen to our kids, they can't teach us what they know, which is like, so right. sad. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I take that to heart myself as a parent. So thank you for laying that out that way. It certainly is a daily struggle to be present, pay attention to, you know, cause we have our own lives and we have our own issues and, uh, but that's great. I just want to go back to one more thing that you said earlier on that is, is fascinating to me. You mentioned that uh, you've seen a lot of, uh, uh, you know, children who are taken off meds during summer vacation, for example, uh, you know, enjoy themselves, have emotions, not be kind of dead in the eyes, as you mentioned. Um, it's another fascinating uh, fact. We, we don't look at that and go, wait a minute. So you mean now they're off meds because they're 
off school. So do they have to just be on meds to perform in school? So is ADHD a school, you know, caused disorder? I mean, what do you say to that when you hear that? It's, it's never the child with the problem ever, never. It's the systems that are surrounding the child that need to change when we have a child who's, who's in trouble, right? So by the systems, I mean the parents, the teachers, the you know, after-school care, the students, the siblings. You know, there's, there's something that's not right in that child's system uh, that's causing them to have problems, right? And act out or act in you know, acting out is, you know, yelling or throwing something, act in is is feeling really depressed and possibly suicidal. Suicide is is epidemic now with not just teens. It's a leading cause of death in teens, but it's the second leading cause of death in children. We have children killing themselves. Now it's and I, I go back to this human connection piece. In, in in the connection to the screens, we've disconnected from children. And children as a default are connecting to screens because they're lonely, because they're not getting paid attention to. And so they use the screen to escape um, because they need, you know, things in the screen that they're not getting in, in real life. So when that happens, when the child starts defaulting to the screen, uh, what we're seeing now is this research is showing about 11% of kids have between eight and 18 have screen addictions. So the, I always look at addiction as the opposite or attachment as the opposite of addiction and attachment. We could say that's human connection. You know, that that's the bond between the parent and the child teacher and child and between siblings and, you know, is it, there's a lot of atta- attachment and connection in that child's life, then we're we're not going to see that propensity to grab the screen and and be on the screen all day. So, um, but yet in schools, we're not supporting that at all. We're handing children with social disorders screens all the time. Screens right. is rewards. Screens is entertainment. Screens is you know, and and so that causes that further disconnection from. Humanity. It, it's almost as if uh, we look at these disorders, right, as a as a reaction to the lack of attachment. So ADHD is also, in a way, a behavioral reaction to a lack of nurture, attachment, feeling secure, and so forth. So, in essence, we're all kind of prone, you know, to become addicted to something unless we start healing that right? Lack of attachment, lack of nurture. How do you deal uh, with that when you have a family uh, that you're working with? uh, You know, some experts say it's not about the child, it's about healing the parents or the the marriage or the the household. How do you deal with that? Or what do you teach? Well, there's actually one instance came to mind. I I was at a parent teacher meeting and there was, um, so a child there had been diagnosed with ADHD and and we had, uh, usually when I go to schools, I'll do some assessments of some kids. And then in the afternoon, we do the parent-teacher meetings. So I'd worked with this child a fair bit during the day. Um, and, and a lot of my work as an occupational therapist is play-based, right? So, but I'm observing while, you know, while we're doing something in the gym, say. 
anyway, I, so I'd formed a bit of a bond, you know, with this, this child. And so we were, um, we're sitting at this meeting and the child was sitting sort of on my knee, kind of on my lap, you know, he came over and he wanted like a hug because hugs actually, uh, stimulating the touch system with pressure can actually calm the child. So with ADHD kids, I use a lot of touch and I use a lot of human connection because those two things together can be really powerful. So I'm giving him some, a bit of deep pressure, you know, he's sitting on my knee and I'm doing this and, and the parents kind of sitting there and, and they're distracted and the phone's going off and, you know, even though it's in the purse and, and the knee is bouncy, you know, and I can see that the, the parent really just didn't want to be there, you know, that their, their head wasn't there. They weren't really present. Right. So I just kind of stopped everything. And I just said, I really want to teach you about um, uh, what I call a squeeze, a shoulder squeeze. Can I teach you about this thing that I'm doing with your son? You know, and uh, the parent was just kind of a bit alarmed. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try you first. Is it okay if I give you a shoulder squeeze? I'm seeing you're a little bit. So I do, I see, I'm seeing you're a little bit um, agitated, you know, you're, you know, a little bit upset, maybe you have to be somewhere and you're worried about that or something. Um, so what I did is I just put my hands, they, they gave me permission. I never ever touch children or adults without permission. I asked first. So I put my hands on their shoulders and I just kind of squeeze in and down and it's a fairly firm pressure and it's a sustained pressure. And so I'm, I'm pushing in to activate the, the joints in the shoulders and pushing down, it activates joints in the spine. Um, I'm doing pressure on the skin, which causes the parasympathetic system to kick in and lower adrenaline. And I'm staying in touch with the parent and I'm saying how I'm getting a bit of eye contact. How, how are you doing with that? And they just go like this. They go, oh, wow. That's, that's everybody. <laughs> they're melting. Face. Yeah. They just look like they're melting. And so I said, I then invited the child into this. Um, so I created a bond with the child, create a bond with parent, invite the child and the parent to bond together. Right. And, um, and the child was like, kind of like, really? <laughs> I, I should go sit on mom's lap. Yes. You know, so what was interesting is I took the the mom's arms kind of because I had my arms on her shoulders. I slid my hands down and I, I actually wrapped her arms around the child. Um, and I don't know if that child ever, I'm sure that the mom has hugged that child before, but not for a while maybe and not enough, right? Intentionally, and, yeah. And so the child kind of sat there like, just like, I don't know what's going on, um, but the parent like really got it. So that's a fairly um, uh, hands-on approach to yeah, that, children. That, that reminds me of, works. right, that's beautiful. And that reminds me of this, the refrigerator theory back in the day when, when they were doing research and saying, oh, autism or being on the spectrum of autism is caused by, uh, you know, cold mothers. I think... I think they shot themselves in the foot because obviously mothers are going to not be happy about that label. But I think this is me personally. I really feel that there's some truth to that, like lack of nurture, lack of touch, lack of, you know, the coldness that perhaps that generation was taught, you know, differently than, than we are now. What do you say to that? This idea that um, uh, emotionally or nurturingly cold 
parent, what kind of effect that has on a child? I mean, you kind of described the opposite that you did with that mother. Um, just curious what, how you feel about that in general. I really feel for parents on this subject because they were given a bad rap way back, like my parents. So I'm 60 something. My parents, um, when they were raising us, were kind of guided by Spock and, you know, these these child developmental, you know, psychiatrists saying, you know, discipline and is is crucial and, you know, you know, don't don't um, feed your child more than every four hours or whatever. Don't you know, I mean, the whole thing was take control over the child, be the alpha parent, you know, like uh, you're in control kind of thing. And if they're crying, that's their fault kind of thing. Right. It was so non-attachment based, right? And out of that then came John Bowlby's theories of, of attachment. And, you know, so thank gosh, somebody came in there and said, whoa, no, wait, this isn't the right way to raise kids. But there is this kind of like um, thing that's back there, you know, about, you know, misinformation and 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 lack of information. I mean, who who else is telling parents about this? Uh, I I don't know that many doctors say that would sit down and tell parents you need to hug your children, right? And uh, right. read them books every night and cuddle with them. And you know, it's just it's kind of we're not giving parents very good information. So parents, without this information, you can't do what you don't know, right? And you know, so until you get the information, you really. It, it, you know, I hate the shame and blame stuff with parents. Like, so don't, if you're, if you're a parent, don't think you've done something wrong. Um, don't feel guilty uh, because you just didn't know these things. Right. 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 That's every parent I've met is doing the best they can do with what they have kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so parents are generally really great people and they're, they have the best interests of the child at heart. Yeah. And I always say that it's, you know, that the, the, the Another thing that I think some of these advocates shoot themselves in the foot with is by saying, oh, it's not bad parenting that causes these issues. Well, I always say, yeah, it's not bad parenting, but it is unconscious parenting. And again, unconscious doesn't mean it's your fault. It's just that you're not conscious because your parents were unconscious, but it's time to open up and, you know, I think turn to experts like yourself and say, hey, what else can I do? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I've tried everything here, but I don't want to medicate. What else can I do? Right. And so in essence, uh, if we want to avoid having our children as adults in 12 step programs for screen addiction, uh, what do you recommend? I mean, you started going there, but what can we do today? So we, we talked about human connection and, um, it's, uh, I, I could t- each of these subjects I can talk about for a couple hours. So I think we covered that one pretty good. So, you know, just, I see, I hear you get, create time. I call it sacred time in the day for just the child, right? So we're not talking about quantity of time because you maybe are working out of your home and, and post COVID, you know, and, Um, You're running a business and, you know, you've got an active social life, you know, so it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And so if you can carve out times during the day when you're available for for your children, so that could be um, the hour around dinner, dinner prep, dinner eat, dinner cleanup, it's all screen free and you're going to, you're you're really kind of, you know, tweaking your brain there to, I'm going to be present for those kids, I'm going to, I'm going to pull everything up and try to not focus on anything other than them. And I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to ask them questions and be curious and I'm going to hug them 
and we're going to maybe read a book or we're going to play a board game or we're going to, you know, so if you can carve out some time during the day when that child knows that you're available, like I found with my kids, the going, you know, picking them up from daycare, going home, you got to make dinner, you got to all this stuff, right, is I spent half an hour when I got home with my kids so on, you know, do you want to read a book? Do you want to play a game? Do you want to da 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 Sometimes that would stretch out if we were having fun to 45 minutes or something. But then I go, okay, so now it's time. I got to go make dinner. And, you know, I got to go check my emails a little bit and, you know, that kind of stuff. And kids are really happy when they get that concentrated 15 minutes even of you. They know they've got you for 15 minutes. And if you have multiple kids, you know, you might want to separate it out, you know, if they're not getting along that well, you know, you might want to spend a certain amount of time with one and then a certain amount of time with the other, but you will reap huge rewards from that because then you say to them, okay, now I've got to go do some work or whatever. I expect that you're going to entertain yourself, not with a screen, but you know, you're going to go color or whatever, you know, go play outside or do something to entertain yourself. Uh, because that's the other thing parents take on a lot is they think they have to entertain their kids all the time and micromanage every minute. And no, they don't. That We want to teach our kids how to self-regulate, how to, uh, how to make up their own day and be creative. And boredom is the origins of creativity and imagination. Kids need to be bored. It's good for them to be bored. I always say to my kids, if they said, I'm bored, yeah. I say, well, then you're boring. You know, so go, go figure out something to do. I've done that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's, um, it's, but you know, after you've given them that great time, then, then you can move on to something else. Yeah. They usually I've noticed with our kids too. And we're like, let's go for a hike or let's do the other day. They had some cousins visit and they were in town and we went to this uh, riverbed and it had changed during the recent rains. There was a lot of rocks that were washed down and tree stumps. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, it just looked like something out of a movie, you know, like a landscape of like a, an alien landscape. And we went there and then we discovered there was a water pool and there were uh, some, some giant rocks that they could jump off into the water. And we just had a blast. Right. But at first they were like, Oh, this is boring. And I said, well, find something to do. And sure enough, they figured things out and they carried their cousins. And then we ran across a rattlesnake and saw it cross in front of us. And then, you know, so that the adventure just increased, but that wasn't in their minds. That wasn't possible half an hour before that until we Absolutely. said, well, what do you want to do? This is, we're here. So you guys figure it out. So I'm a big, yeah, that, that was a big, uh, so right there you rewired or you offered them the opportunity to rewire their brain. So they had, they were looking for kind of stimulus, like, like it's boring here. Where's the flashing lights and the noise, <laughs> you know? And, and you, you just said, it, it'll come, it'll come to you. You know, it does take time to kind of, I call it like they have to race kind of all that crap out of their brain mm -hmm. um, to be able to then start looking around and kind of seeing all the beauty that nature has to offer. Yeah. Because that's all that craps in there, you know, the, the right. game. And now let's get a little futuristic here for a moment. Um, where is this all going? I mean, screens aren't going anywhere. We're going to get stuff automated, right? AI is going to have lots of things replaced. Um, how do you feel about the future of children today that are going to become adults in like 10 years, you know, 
Well, it's, it's not about the screen, you know, it's about um, how the screen displaces all these other great activities. So I've developed this concept term balanced technology management, that as adults, we need to manage balance between screens and healthy activities. So if kids use lots of healthy activity, if they engage in lots of movement, touch, connection, nature, then screen use goes down. Of course, it's the, the healthy activities displace the screen time, but lots of screens, you know, no access to the four critical factors, movement, touch, connection, nature. So what I suggest parents do, instead of talking screen reduction, right, to their kids, nobody likes that. Parents don't even like talking screen reduction. Yeah. What I talk about is increased engagement in healthy activity. So what is that? And so let me just go through and, and quickly recapture the other three. We've talked about human connection is one of them. Uh, movement is absolutely crucial. We, we know kids need to move because it helps their cardiovascular fitness, right? Helps them stay fit, helps their body develop. But what a lot of people don't understand is that movement actually um, translates to literacy. It translates to being good in sports. It translates to kids feeling confident and competent in skills, right? So when kids move off their center, so let's imagine a child on a merry-go-round, which we've thrown all of those out, even though they were amazing for child development. Um, so what happens there on this merry-go-round and, and there's a system in the brain called the vestibular system. And it's it often referenced like the inner ear. And it's a series of canals in different planes with fluid. And when the child's moving around that fluid swishing, and it's telling the brain, the, the stimulus system talks to the brain and it says, whoa, she's getting knocked off her center. We need to set core. And so it sends a message to the core, which is kind of like the tree trunk, right? Of the body to get strong, to hold itself in center. Now core is absolutely crucial for motor coordination or for the ability of the two hands to talk to each other, for the, the upper body to talk to the lower body, for the eyes actually to talk to each other, really important that we have a lot of movement and for the eyes to talk to the hand. So when we get that coordination, we get a strong core and we get those coordination pieces coming into play, then we're better readers and we're better printers, right? And especially if we're using a lot of outdoor movement, we're better at math because because the 3D world is all about space, right? And, and spatial concepts needed for math are found, the foundation for those are actually found in play. So um, when we're moving around and we're throwing a ball, we have to kind of go, oh, I got to get it over there. So I have to give it this much force and I have to direct it, you know, it's all space. And when we are grounded in those, um, those movements, then we can, we're, we're just much better at when we get into school. It's, so it, our kids it, aren't moving enough. Right. I was going to say it's, it's unfortunate because you know, one of the criteria is hyperactivity, right? For a diagnosis and ADHD, that's what the H stands for. Right. Um, and to me, it almost seems like that children that are hyperactive either don't get enough movement or their movements restricted or, or they, they're showing us they need a lot more movement than say another child, but we're then, you know, crushing that already. We're, we're constraining 
that movement by labeling it as a disorder. There's something wrong with you. I mean, it's, it's sad. It is so sad because that child, I tell parents this a lot. If your child were born a hundred years ago, they'd be super successful, but they're born now. And we've told them they have to sit in that desk and, and sit still. And, uh, you know, and, and, and then we give them all kinds of things to, to make them sit still like games and, and whatnot. Anytime you put a, a, a screen in front of a child, they sit, right? Take it away. They get up and run around. So um, we want that. We want children to be running around. Children need movement. And so a lot of my initiatives that I, I put forth in my reconnect webinars are how can we increase access to movement in classrooms, gyms, recess playgrounds, communities, homes, can we, um, I have actually assisted uh, parents build like amazing gyms in their basement, right? Wow. So, you know, we just get, you know, they mat the area and then they get different things like rings, you know, the rings that are suspended with um, mm -hmm. uh, strapping, uh, TRX uh, strapping is like a, you know, it's like a fitness thing, but uh, it helps, it helps kids to um, really use a lot of their different muscles and coordinate their muscles. Um, you know, there could be um, agility ladders for practicing soccer. There could be chin up bars. There could be, you know, like a uh, indoor basketball hoop. There's all kinds of things you can put uh, in uh, your house. Like if you've got like stairs that you have a switchback, hang a trapeze bar. You know, the kids can run down, jump up, grab the trapeze bar, spin and then, you know, slide mm -hmm. down the rest of the stairs. Um, you know, think about uh, adding all these things. What will be really great is you will have a home that all the kids are going to want to come to. Right. So as far as if you have a child who doesn't have friends, does, has difficulty making friends, put some of this stuff in there, get some fun stuff. Right. And uh, and then invite the kids over and you'll see a huge, you know, um, difference. These kids want to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. But if they haven't done it a lot, then they have very low confidence. This is something really important for parents to understand is if, it, if your child hasn't done, say, played soccer or any sports, they are they're completely petrified of doing that in front of other kids, right? So their confidence is low and their competence, their ability to really do well at it is really low. Their perception is really low. Maybe they actually, if they try it, they might be good, but they don't want to try it, right? So it's important for parents at home to actually start increasing the child's access to these things so they can practice you know, these things mm. at home, right? I have a question. So one thing that's come up, but this is months ago, um, my oldest son started playing ping pong and he loved it. And somebody said somewhere in a podcast that hand-eye coordination is really good for children with ADHD. Um, I'm assuming that all has to do same again with rewiring the brain to pay attention and so forth. Um, ha have you come across something like that where certain activities are better for, for children who are, who have these behaviors? Well, I, I'm going to go a little deeper into the movement um, explanation, but once you know this as a parent, it's going to make a huge difference is there's two types of movement uh, that stimulate different areas of the brain and body, and you'll get a different result. So one of the types of movement actually increases the arousal of the child so that they're really like, 
like they've woken up and the other one actually drains energy and calms them down. So obviously, if you have a child with ADHD, you want to kind of do more of the second one, right? So I just want to talk about each one. So the first one, I did actually talk about a little bit. The vestibular system is in the brain. It gets activated with movement that is either jumping or spinning or moving side to side or moving forward back. Those types of movements. So even just I, I, I um, really push standing tables in schools. Because once you get kids up and standing, their arousal is going to be better. They're going to be more in the zone to be able to learn, right? So why not have them be four kids at a standing table working together? Because we're looking at social. So we've got some connection stuff going on there. We're activating vestibular um, because they're standing and they're moving. So we're going to increase arousal. So if kids are really sleepy. That's something we want to do. So um that's one system. And so basically it's anything off center, swings, slides, merry grounds, um, jumping up and down, jumping jacks, like uh, uh, any, any sort of movement that knocks them off their center is going to increase their arousal. So let's say you have a child who's over aroused. So what we want to activate there is something called the proprioceptive system. And let's just call it prop. And it's found in the muscles and the joints, and it gets activated with heavy work or with isometric um, activities. So um, let's say um, we're going to go to the gym and we're going to lift weights. That's activating that proprioceptive system. Let's say we're um, we're using the chin-up bar that we've installed like, uh, you know, on the wall down in the basement. That's activating this proprioceptive system. Any heavy work, shoveling snow, hauling wood, um, like bringing in the groceries, you know, uh, like raking the leaves, like anything that's requiring a little bit of resistance, digging in dirt, really good one, you know, for draining energy. So when we have a child who's jacked up on their energy, um, you know, level, we want to drain that energy, or I, I call it kind of harnessing the energy, right? Um, we want to play with that energy. So I see, I see you really jacked up. I see you're really hyper right now. What can you do? And I have big lists of this, you know, that people get in my workshops. What can you do that will help you feel calmer? So there's even simple things like this is the most simple one. It's called a hand push. So actually, Roman, you and I are going to do this together. And I do a hand push. Okay. Encourage everybody out there to do it. So we're putting our hands together so that our palms are together our shoulders are extended, our elbows are at 90 degrees, and we're gonna push our hands together for the count of 10. So ready, really hard. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine and a half, <laughs> 10. 10. Okay, take a deep breath. So smell the flower. Blow up candles. <sighs> okay. So just tell me how that, do you feel any different at all, Roman? Yeah, I do feel a, a warmth in my upper body. I feel kind of more grounded. I feel strong, uh, alert. Yeah. Uh, so that was a very simple, simple thing. So pushing pushing our hands together, doing plank on the floor, that yoga pose, you know, 
um, uh, doing wall pushes with little kids, I say to them something like, hey, let's make Ms. So-and-so's classroom bigger. Go on over here. We're going to push this. You know, you make fun of it. Kids love what I call push off, which is um, they just face each other. They put their hands out and they one foot forward, one foot back. And then they try to push each other across the classroom, across the gym. Um, It's a very simple technique to drain energy. So um, I teach teachers this, you know, if kids are cooking up out on the playground, you know, instead of saying, okay, so go see the principal or you're bad because you're hitting this other kid or whatever, you know, push off. Why don't you guys do a push off or tug, tug of war, tug off. There, there can be many things you can do with activating that proprioceptive system to drain energy. So for my ADHD kids, I would be like, okay, so after recess, I want this kid to like run around the school for three, three laps, you know, before they come in or, you know, toward the end of recess, the teacher says, okay, Johnny, you gotta, you gotta run three laps, remember? And, uh, or climb up the slide backward is activating again, that proprioceptive system to have them do some heavy work. Um, so we want to kind of like work those frequent movement breaks into the day to kind of keep the energy in the zone. And why can't they stand, you know, instead of sit? Why can't they, um, right. you know, go to the bathroom when they need to? A lot of ADHD kids, they want to go to the bathroom because they just need to move. Yeah. Can they move around the classroom? Can we create movement stations so they can go and get their their energy needs met, drained or you know, increase their energy and, you yeah, know, and, and then be able to learn. It's amazing how a lot of kids are shunned, you know, like, oh, he's moving again. He's going to bathroom again. Well, he needs to sit still. He needs to learn how to sit still. And, and I saw a study once and I, I don't remember where it came from, but it was something like over 50% of the kids that are in these sit down classrooms today are not going to be working in jobs or careers where they actually sit the whole time. So we're still treating it as a one size fits all, right? And we're telling everybody to sit down and everybody to sit still. And again, it's just so disappointing that we're still hanging on to this antiquated idea that everybody's going to have to learn how to sit still because the world's going to teach you that you need to sit still for the rest of your life. It's like, no, that's not true, (laughs) you know? But I love that. I love those examples. Um, So, Chris, anything else that you would like uh, parents to know, especially parents with children who've been diagnosed uh, with ADHD uh, in general, uh, from your point of view, uh, as someone with a lot of experience? Right. Well, I touched a little bit on touch. And just to give you a little more information, whenever we touch a child, especially when we use this deep pressure touch, we're activating thousands of they're called mechanoreceptors in the skin so our skin if we took our skin off and laid it on the ground it would cover an area 20 feet by 20 feet our skin is the largest organ actually in our body yet we kind of ignore it you know and we can use touch to calm children with adhd and so um the more and and this is something important if you haven't touched your child very much your child might be a little bit of touch sensitive, meaning, you know, you, you, you want to go to give them a hug and they're like, oh, they react, you know, um, 
but what we want to do is is we can we can change the way the brain's interpreting touch by giving touch. So we ask, would you like a hug? Would you like a shoulder squeeze? Child may say no at the beginning. I don't know what that is, you know. So, you know, as parents, you might just give each other a shoulder squeeze. Like, would you like a shoulder squeeze, Rowan? Yes, okay. And, you know, your partner gives you a shoulder squeeze and the child watches, right? And then they go, oh, they look really relaxed after that, right? So um, we want to use a lot of touch with kids with ADHD and um, we can do things like we can we can use weighted lap bags, you know, like just fill a pillowcase full of um, kidney beans or whatever, and any sort of weight on around their shoulders or on their head or on their lap is going to calm them. So things like um, you know homework around the kitchen table is weight them, <laughs> and and you'll I see like that. the difference. A pillowcase full of beans. My oldest would love these. Very tactile. You there know. you go. He's always been from an early age, you know, not as soon as he could talk, but there was always this, this statement he would say, he would say, oh, that feels so satisfying, you know, and that satisfying is a word you don't use necessarily at four or five years old, but he was always like, just oh, like you could, you could just see he's like, oh my God, this is so soft and just, you know, very tactile. I love that. So. Yeah. Okay, so re- and remember the pressure, the weight is what, yeah. you know. And kids love, you know, if you want to turn it into a game, um, you know, they love like taking the couch cushion, like lying on one couch cushion, putting the other one on top of them and then telling you to sit on them. You know, they, they really crave that, that deep pressure because it's actually lowering their adrenaline and making them feel calm. So the fourth, so we talked about movement, touch connection, the fourth one nature is there has been so much research out there showing a uh, huge impact on a, a child's ability to pay attention and learn. So way back in 2004 was some of the preliminary studies were coming out showing that, um, well, what they found was that inner city kids had three times the ADHD as rural kids, or they were diagnosed three times more frequently than rural kids. So they did a beautiful study. This is Ann Faber-Taylor and her partner Kuo. And back in 2004, did a study and they they found that it was they came up with like nine null hypotheses, right? They were kind of tested nine areas. And what they found is it was green space, access to green space. Rural kids have more green space, they have more trees, more grass, you know, and they get out in it more, right? And so um, then they went on to kind of quantify, well, how much green space do they need? And an EPIC study, I think this was 2009 now, they found that just 20 minutes, they called the study a walk in the park, just 20 minutes of, of access to green space significantly improved their ability to pay attention and hence learn. You know, if you can pay attention, you can you can access learning. If you can't pay attention, you can't learn. So um, so they've gone on. This is out of University of Illinois to do massive studies on, you know, outdoor school concepts and, uh, you know, and exactly what is it doing. So when we think of nature, it it's so calming, right? It first of all, when you go out in nature, you and you look around, you go, "Wow, huh, I just you know I feel so much calmer." Um, just looking at the green of the trees and the blue of the sky and the brown of the dirt and those sorts of things can can really calm a child's nervous system down. Mm-hmm. So 
so this is something that children should be outside every day for an hour. And right now it's about five minutes. Children are spending about five minutes a day on average outside. Wow. And so we've gotten as adults um, and parents kind of scared of nature, scared of being out there. What's going to happen? You know, I won't be able to see you or I won't, uh, you know, the fear of parents today around children being hurt or kidnapped or, you know, abused or, you know, is, is huge because of, you know, media is telling us this all the time. Oh, so-and-so got stabbed and so-and-so got shot and so-and-so, you know, and you're just kind of as a parent going, oh, I don't want my child to do that. So we keep our kids inside because they're safe, right? Yeah. Well, they're not actually, you know, the internet isn't safe at all. And we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, pedophiles grooming kids, you know, on these chat chat lines, anything that's online has an ability to chat and that person can get to your kid. So, it, you know, we have to kind of like rethink safety and talk to your partner about, you know, could my child who's 12 hop on a bike and go visit their friend after school? You yeah. know, like, is that reasonable? Have we taught the child's safe street skills, you know? Um, ask your child a bunch of things. What would you do with this? What would you do with that? You know, and and the, if your child's pretty smart and uh, knows what they could do, then really they could be spending a lot more time outside, right? So that's um, those are kind of my four my four critical factors. So when you have a child that's doing something that you know you don't like, think of those four things. What could we do to enact those four things? That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and I remember, I think there's a term coined nature deficit syndrome or something as a sort of a right counter to ADHD. And I think that to your point that the less nature, the less grounding earth energy that, that these children get or feel the more uh, distracted hyper they are through technology or through being inside of a building with walls and, you know, electricity and whatnot that's sort of bombarding their systems. So it totally makes sense that the more nature we can get in front of them or them into nature, uh, the less we're going to see what we label as disordered or, you know, a symptom. Um, so Chris, this was a beautiful conversation. I think uh, that's a lot for parents to take in. I certainly have a lot of myself to think about as a parent. Um, we're going to make sure that, like I said earlier, that uh, all the links are in the show notes where they can find you, they can find your work, social media, but also uh, the references to the studies, right? That's important for a lot of parents. Uh, these are all backed up. These are not things that you've come up with, I've come up with. They're scientific, you know, studies, uh, medical studies and so forth. So I really appreciate you. Uh, taking a deep dive here with us and laying it out for us, what we can do as parents, right? Not just a pill. Yes, for certain people, that's a Band-Aid for a short amount of time, I hope, uh, that they may have to use. But um, I really get that you're committed to creating balance between nature and screens for kids and creating balance between, you know, hard schoolwork, but also obviously play, uh, so I just want to thank you, uh, not in, in behalf of our podcast, but also for all the parents and children that, you know, the difference that you've made over, uh, the years of, of, of working with families really appreciate that. I, I just want to on your, I just want to spin for a bit here onto 
when we have all this research showing that movement, touch, connection, nature actually improves a child's ability to pay attention and learn amongst a whole load of other things, their mental health, their physical health. When we have all this research showing that and the research on stimulant meds is not showing improvements and is actually showing harm, then what we really need to do is, is try these alternative methods first, right? So please, before you put your child on meds, like take, take a good dive into the alternate stuff, you know, so take a parenting course or decide we're going to, as a family, we're going to, we're going to do something once a week for half a day without screens. And it's going to be darn fun, you know? And uh, so take a really good um, dive into that. And then, you know, if you feel that you, you need to use meds, then at least you've tried all these other things. So that's a really great point, Chris. No child has ever been, or no, no child's uh, growth has ever been stunted by nature or no child has ever gotten a tick through nature or uh, depressed or, you know, um, but we don't look at it that way. We go, well, yeah, but it's sort of, we take it for granted, right? So I, I definitely echo what you said that uh, I think alternative first, and then if there's an emergency or an urgency uh, for meds, yes. But one thing I want to point out too, and I'm sure you agree with this, uh, I would imagine is that, you know, when parents uh, choose alternative over traditional, in this case, they're forced to look at themselves and their own lives and their marriage and the careers they're in, because all that's going to come up. Because when we go alternative, we need more time and energy and focus or attention for our children, right? And everything gets questions and things need to be changed. And I think that's a great side effect of going alternative. Because the meds are, are what I call short-term gain, long-term pain. You know, they might work for a couple months, but then you've suddenly lost your child to, you know, the stimulant and, yeah. and, and they're not happy and kids don't like these drugs at all. They make them feel horrible. So, um, yeah, it's really, yeah. It's a dependency, right? We are creating dependent uh, people because they need the drug or the pill to feel whole, to feel accepted and to deliver whatever they're asked to deliver. Right. But ultimately, uh, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of adults that were medicated as children. And they actually, contrary to the sort of mainstream message, they actually ended up self-medicating with a variety of drugs. And a lot of them have become drug addicts and drug abusers and smoke cigarettes and alcoholics. And because they were like, oh, oh, well, I guess if I take this out external thing, I will feel better and I'm more accepted or I'm more this, that, right? And suddenly there's a dependency. And I think that's not a good thing. I, I just want to end by saying your um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I hope that you've really, you know, got a lot out of this. I also have a, a website called reconnect webinars and hence the word reconnect. We need to disconnect, you know, from screens and reconnect. And there's um, a three hour parent workshop on there. There's also a free teen workshop. And uh, I'm very, very um, keen on on offering this information to directly to the kids and the teens, right? 
And so that's that's on the website as well. And um, so you, you could actually watch that with your child and then kind of discuss some of this stuff, you know, as it's going along. And it's it's a webinar, so you can pause it, you know, it's not like you have to do three hours all at once, right? You um, the the system, the learning management system, like remembers where you are in it. So, and then there's also on the website there's a fact sheet, there's a, an addiction questionnaire, there's like all kinds of stuff, book lists, um, helpful websites. Um, so uh, please visit our site and and take a peek at what we've got there for you to help. Absolutely. And we're going to have that in the show notes. So it's easy for the listeners. And I got mine queued up for my son. He's going to do this uh, this summer during vacation. That's one of the requirements is to do the workshop. And so I'm excited about that. Thanks for sharing that with us. And yeah, just again, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate all the information you shared. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll do a part two in the future. But there's so much here. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, uh, for this to just spread out there. So well, thank, thank you, you Roman, for, for what you do too, because it's, it's just so wonderful to meet people that are, um, you know, super into like really looking at this stuff and figuring out a different way. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Chris.